Hi, Chris Felton here. Welcome to my podcast where we hope to inspire you to transform the world within you and transform the world around you. Over the next several months, we're going to take a journey through the years of messages that I've spoken in the last decade that are both memorable, monumental, and I think marking to both me and the global family. I'm excited to share this message with you today. I pray the Lord ministers to you as you listen. God bless you. Turn to Matthew chapter 10, would you? Matthew chapter 10. As you go, Jesus tells the disciples, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Let's do that together. As you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, Raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you received, freely give. How many of you know that as an apostolic people, we're not called to just lend a hand, but to extend a kingdom? As an apostolic people, we're not called just to lend a hand, but we're, we're called to say the kingdom is at hand. Do you know that healing, miracles... They're called signs and wonders. Do you know that healing is called a sign and a wonder? Why? Because when somebody gets healed, the kingdom has come near them. You've got to get this. See, what happens is when somebody is, is delivered, when someone gets a miracle, it's a sign. What is it a sign of? That the kingdom is at hand, that the kingdom has come right, the kingdom has, 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 has ripped the veil and has touched you. Something from another world has just invaded your heart and life, and you have the ability to bridge back into that veil and become a part of the kingdom. Listen, I believe in humanitarian efforts. I really do. I mean it sincerely. Uh, Kathy and I give lots of money to, we love Africa personally, so we give lots of money to Africa and orphanages and and it's, you know, humanitarian stuff. It's, it's feeding the orphans and the poor, and I believe in that. So please, the rest of what I'm about to say, please don't think, I, I, I don't think that's valuable. I do, but we've got to do more than the Lions Club. We've got to do more than Rotary does. We've got to do our works in such a way that when people see our good works, they know there's a God. Listen, Rotary Club does great things. I was a part of Rotary Club. I, 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 listen, it even sounds like I'm, I'm saying something. I love those clubs. It's great. They help people. Anybody that helps people, I'm for. I mean it, sincerely. But people don't go, oh my God. Well, maybe I should back up. They don't say, oh, there's a God. When they get money from the Rotary Club. They thank the Rotary Club. And Jesus said, the kind of works that I want you to do won't just be lending a hand. How many know people don't need a handout? They need a hand up. And I I know that gets a clap every time, but what I mean is a hand up into the kingdom. They need to know that the kingdom has come near. Now, how many of you know that there are natural laws? There are laws of nature. And you don't even have to be a Christian to know that, that that nature actually has a pattern. 
A lot of people are like, they believe that God's just this spontaneous be- being that just has, you know, being led by the Spirit means you're just a spontaneous person who you wake up in the morning and God goes, you know, there's someone going to be in your life that has a red shirt and a purple hat on. And, you know, and you're like, oh, I'm being led by the Spirit. I remember when we used to ask the, um, the worship team years ago for a, a, a list of songs they were going to do. And it was like, it was like an insult or an insult, not S-A-L-T, salt, but like, maybe it's spelled the same, no, it's not, because I know that, because spell check, <laughs> like, say what? I was like, an insult, it's like, I can't give you a list, I'm being led by the Spirit, as if the Holy Spirit didn't know what songs you were going to sing, like, before the world was made. See, what seems spontaneous to us was totally all planned by God. The Bible says that, you know, what happened 2,000 years ago on the cross, it looked like people got angry at Jesus' messages and they drug him off to a cross. All spontaneous just happened and a mad crowd just, you know, inspired the religious people, so on and so forth. But the Bible says he was crucified from the foundation of the world. I don't know if you're getting what I'm saying, but, but the, the, the world... The, this kingdom, this, this visible empire that we live in, it is so well planned that there are actually algebraic equations that explain most of creation. Like, scientists can explain creation through mathematical equations because creation follows a pattern that can be explained because it repeats itself over and over and over. Do you know that? I want to propose to you that, well, let me give you an example. Like, do you understand that the law, when the law of momentum and the law of friction collide, that your car stops? Do you understand that when the law of momentum and the law of friction collide, that's what brings your car to a stop? Do you understand when the law of gravity and the law of flight when they collide, the plane takes off. Are, are you following me? In other words, there are natural laws, and then there are natural laws that supersede the na- natural laws. So that friction can overcome momentum. And that flight can c- overcome gravity. I want to propose to you that what we call a miracle is actually a superior ecosystem superimposing itself over an inferior ecosystem. So that what seems supernatural in this realm is actually just an inferior, the inferior, no, I'm sorry, the superior, there we go. (laughs) You'd think three times of practice you could do this right the third time. What we call a miracle is simply the superior nature of the third heaven superimposing itself over the inferior nature of the first heaven. So that what's natural in the third heaven, when it gets superimposed over the first heaven, what we call a miracle is just the way of life in the third heaven. Are you with me? And so what's really important is, is that when people get healed, that, that the, the message isn't that they got healed. The message is that the, the veil 
of the third heaven just got rent and a hand came through the third heaven and touched you. You just got touched with the laws of nature from another kingdom and it's a sign of an invitation for you to come in to a, to a new dimension so not only do you get healed, but you begin to live in divine health. When you heal the sick, you should say, not these exact words, of course, but the kingdom has just come near you. Why? Because healing the sick is a means to the end. What is the end? The kingdom, the veil of the kingdom, the world that lives among our world, the superior, the superior ecosystem has just invaded your inferior complex. John 5, you know, I've shared this lots of times, but John 5 is the story of the pool of Bethesda. You know, I believe that the Bible has dimensions. That there are dimensions to the Bible. I believe that any unbeliever could read the Bible, stay an unbeliever, and still gain insights for their life. That would be helpful. But I do believe that the Holy Spirit ultimately is the teacher, and that when we read the Bible with the teacher present, and we become his pupil, that there are dimensions to truth that that atheist who wants to remain an atheist will never see. And I, I, and I think that there are dimensions to the Bible. And I think it's, you know, really simply put, and you've heard this many times, I'm sure, the children of Israel, they came out of Egypt. Egypt, a type of a bondage, slavery. And then they crossed through the Red Sea. And Hebrews says they were baptized in the Red Sea. How many know they really, this really happened? It's not like a fairy tale or a story. But, but when, they, when, they, when they got baptized in the Red Sea, they came out of Egypt, got baptized in the Red Sea, how many of you know that that's a sign of your, the way you got saved, the way of salvation? Are you with me? That you came out of bondage, uh, a cruel master, uh, you, you know, you were, you were in slavery. You weren't your own master. And you, you got baptized into the blood of Christ, the Red Sea. And then you came into the wilderness. And you weren't in the promised land yet, but you were, at least you were out of bondage. And then what happens is you cross the River Jordan. And you know, in the Red Sea, they bragged about the fact that they didn't get wet. But in the River Jordan, the priest had to get wet up to their loins, the place of reproduction. And how many of you know that when you, got, when you received Jesus, you went through a second baptism? John said, I'll baptize you with water, but one's coming greater than me. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And you received that second Holy Spirit baptism and a river. Not, well, you didn't just get in the river, the river got in you. And then it got out of you. And there began a river flowing out of your belly, the place of reproduction. Does that make sense? And so that really happened. And then, and then the children of Israel, they, 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 before they can come all the way into Canaan's land, they went through three cities. They passed through three cities. The first one was called Sin, S-I-N. It was the name of a city. The second one named Adam, A-D-A-M. And the third one named Gilgal, which I can't spell. But they went through those three cities. And, they, and then they came into the promised land, the actual promised land. And it's such a, it depicts such a picture that we have to leave sin behind. We have to leave Adam, our old man, behind. And we have to get Gilgal. We have to, we have to be circumcised of heart before we can pass into the, into the promised land. Are, are you getting this? In other words, what I'm saying is that those things were really true, but they were also parables, riddles, metaphors, if you will, of the way that we come into the kingdom and the way the kingdom comes into us. The book of Proverbs, the first chapter of the book of Proverbs says something that I think is profound. It says that one of the reasons for the Proverbs, one of the reasons Solomon wrote Proverbs was to understand riddles. It would do us well 
to realize that our Father loves crossword puzzles. Cross word puzzles. He loves to talk to you in a way, it's the glory of God to hide a matter, it's the glory of kings to search it out. You are the kings that he's king over, he's king of kings and lord of lords. You are some of the kings he's king over and you need to understand that your father loves to hide things, not from you, but for you. And that most of the deep things of God are hidden in riddles and parables and dark sayings. And when I say dark sayings, I'm not talking about like evil dark. I'm talking about like they're hidden beyond what's visible. They, you need the anointing of the owl to see through the darkness. I love the owl, don't you? I think it's the coming symbol of the new, of the, of the new thing God's doing because the owl knows who's who. So in John chapter 5, and many of you have heard this already, so please endure to the end so you can be saved. In John chapter 5, it's the story of the pool of Bethesda. We're not going to read it because it'll take too long, and the 49ers play at 1 o'clock, and i got to be there. Listen, I have a ministry of intercession. And whenever they're in session, I am, need to be in the inner court. We should have a moment of silence for them right now. And the Raiders, they need a resurrection. They don't even, a moment of silence won't help the Raiders. <laughs> I was in a, an Apple store yesterday and there was a large African-American man, big man, had a Raiders shirt on. And I, I was in the store and I turned to him, I said, now that takes guts. He looked at me and he goes, you're not kidding. <laughs> Whatever, you know, he's probably a believer. <laughs> you didn't get that. But anyway, what were we talking about? Oh, pull of Bethesda. There was a pull of Bethesda, John 5. And we're not going to read it because it took too much time to tell jokes. <clears throat> John 5, there's a pull of Bethesda. And it says the pool of Bethesda has five porticles. And you know, how many of you know that that pool, I mean, I imagine that that pool was some central point in the city. It's just my own thoughts. That it probably had a, a waterfall in it. And it there, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure there was, it was probably had a lot of effects around the pool that we weren't told about. The only thing we're told is that there's a pool and it has five porticles. And, and you know, whenever I see something like that, I'm like, I don't know, my mind just does this thing. I just go, why does he tell us about the fact that it has five porches, but he doesn't bother to tell us anything else about a pool? And I start thinking, this is a riddle. It's the parable. It's, there's something about that pool that's more than a pool. Yes, people got, you know, okay, so are you following me? And so I started praying about that, and this is a, more than a year ago, and the Lord started showing me that that the pool of Bethesda was a real pool, just like the children of Israel really did leave Egypt and so on. But it's also a parable, a riddle, written into the sands of time, where the Lord is saying more than it looks on the surface. And I began to realize, and the Lord gave me this word, and many of you have heard it. He said, when the, he said that the pool of Bethesda is covered by five porticles because it represents the fivefold ministry. And when the fivefold ministry goes from emerging to merging, when they merge into one pool, they create strategic alliances with heavenly allies, and the angels begin to come to the pool and help us. 
And it creates kind of this, I don't know what you'd call it, like an apostolic vortex, if you will. And I preach that here, that people come to the pool and there's extraordinary miracles. And then one day I realized something, and this came about several months later, and this is a real long story, I'm trying to make it short, that we're moving from the pool of Bethesda, which is, represents, uh, let's see if you can follow what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to do this fast. But it represents a church, the church age. Are you with me? And follow me. I believe we're moving from the church age to the apostolic age. See, God's no longer interested in just having church. He's interested in transforming nations. And so the pool of Bethesda represented the church age. It's like, you need to get healed. You come to church. You need counseling. You come to church. Listen to this one. This will offend a few of you. You need to get fed. You come to church. You need to get saved. You come to church. And it's like God meets you at church. And all of our church structure is all based around, you know, the arguments about Sunday morning church are all, well, do you get really radical because that scares away the unbelievers? And, well, maybe you should tone it way down. It's like, well, that scares away the Holy Spirit. And I, I didn't mean scares, you know, that's inappropriate. But whatever, whatever that is that we're saying. Actually, I wasn't even trying to be funny. It just when you guys start laughing, I'm like, I guess it didn't sound right. But you know what I'm trying to say? The whole, the whole argument over what Sundays should look like is based on how do we get people who need God into the building? Right? And, and there's all these different philosophies that are, you know, none of them are bad. There's different opinions. It's good that people can actually think. I like it. But the Lord said to me, we're moving from the pool of Bethesda to Ezekiel's river. And let, you got to get this. Ezekiel's river, it says... That, the, that there's sanctuary door, underneath the sanctuary, the door of the sanctuary, that water begins to seep, actually it says trickle, from underneath the sanctuary door. Now, that should be encouraging because it still depicts a church that has the, the door closed. And yet God still got out. <laughs> I like that, actually. It's not depicting a full revival where the door is wide open and people are being touched. It depicts a church that's still closed. But the Lord, the, the water begins to seep underneath the sanctuary door. Are you with me? And the angel takes, uh, who was Ezekiel, he takes Ezekiel. Sorry, so many of those guys in the Bible. <laughs> he takes Ezekiel and he, and, he, and he walks them a thousand cubits from the sanctuary door and it's water up to his ankles. And he walks him another thousand cubits. Now there are two thousand cubits from the front door, water up to his knees. He walks him another thousand cubits to three thousand cubits from the front door of the church, and there's water up to his loins. And then he walks him four thousand cubits, and pretty soon there's a river that no one can swim in. I don't know if you're getting this, but what this, what this parable this riddle predicts is that the further you get from the church the more powerful the miracles are it predicts the apostolic age that people go from coming to church to becoming the church and Sunday mornings they become Holy Spirit terrorist training centers Instead of you like, you need to get saved, you need to come to church. It's like, hey, you need to get saved? The church is here. You need delivered. Hey, you just met the church. 
The kingdom is at hand. Why? Because the kingdom is within me. And you just came close to the kingdom because I'm with you. Let me put my hand around you. Then the kingdom's arms around you. Man, this is a good word I'm preaching right now. And what I'm getting at is this, is that we're going from coming to church to becoming the church, and we're becoming an apostolic people. Because no longer is the emphasis getting someone in the doors of the church, but getting people out of the church. We need to get you out of the church. I told the class, I don't know, Danny's class, this week, I said, man, I don't want anybody to, I don't want any more preachers in the pulpit. You're making me sick. Just sickening. It's like, I want to be in full-time ministry. And that equates to, I want to stand behind a pulpit and preach to people who are already overfed. Man, we need apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to seep out underneath the door. We need, the, we, need people's, we need people's pulpits to be in the workplace. Huh. That's a good word, I know. You know, Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Pray that the Lord of harvest would send labors into the harvest. Do you know that you're Jesus' answer? You're God's answer to Jesus' prayer? You know, long, you know it's no longer true that the Harvest is plentiful and the labors are few. If you believe that, you believe that God doesn't answer prayer. Actually, what happened is, when Jesus prayed that, the harvest became the labors. I don't even believe in the five-fold ministry anymore. I don't. I believe in the six-fold ministry. See, it seems ridiculous to have the equipment managers be the people who play the game. And Ephesians 4 says that he gave apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints to do the work of service. I believe in the sixfold ministry. You know, in Daniel 7, it says that, that greatness, no, it says that a kingdom greatness, it says something in there that's amazing. The, the dominion, the sovereignty, and the greatness. That's what it says. Of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given, listen to this, to the saints of the highest one. It doesn't say given to the apostles, or given to the prophets of the highest one. It says given to the saints of the highest one. Man, I want to be in on that. I don't want to just be a prophet. That's just an equipment manager. I want to rule the universe. I was born to be like, I thought global king, but then I thought, you know what? Ministry's bigger than that, because he said, un, he, all the kingdoms under the whole heaven, so I'm like, maybe I should be intergalactic king. <laughs> it's just a thought, I see you're not flowing with it. <laughs> it's the saints of the highest one who receive a kingdom. It's not the prophets, it's not the apostles, the pastors. It's the saints. Are you with me? In other words, what I'm getting at is this, is that there's a reason why the prophets and apostles are called foundations, because they're the lowest people in the church. The people who are actually doing signs and wonders and miracles are supposed to be the saints of the highest one. You are apostolic people. 
It's amazing to me, and this has been told lots of times, but when Jesus names his, when he moves, when he names his disciples, so what? So I made a mistake. You don't have to laugh then. So when, when, it, when they went from learners to leaders, it's amazing what he names them. Because he could have named them patriarchs. There was 12 patriarchs. He could have named them priests. There was a whole priestly order. Could have named them prophets. There was a whole school of prophets and a prophetic order. But he names them apostles. Apostles were, he named them, do you realize that when he named the disciples, he named them the name of an enemy? He said, you are my apostles. When he moved them from learners to leaders, he named them the name of their enemy. And the apostles were the people, see the Romans were taking land, they would conquer a city and go on to the next city, and when they'd go on to the next city, they'd come back to the city they conquered, and the city would be back to its old ways. And they go, what are we conquering cities for, not transforming cultures? How many know when you're in Rome, you what? Do as the Romans do. See, that was the Roman attitude. Listen, when you're in Rome, you do as the Romans do. <laughs> you talk about freedom of speech? No, no, no. You do what the Romans do. And so they started these envoys, and what they do is they would conquer cities, and they would culturize the people. So with these envoys, they would send a general. This general who led the envoy was named Apostle. That was his title. You were an apostle. They'd send these envoys out, and these envoys had a general, and they had a bunch of guys, you know, obviously military with them. But with the envoys, this has been really good for President Bush to know in the early days, with these envoys were also teachers, philosophers, and all the different people who could teach the people the Roman ways. So they'd conquer the people, and then they would culturize them to the Roman ways so that they were in Rome, they'd do as the Romans do. Are you with me? And Jesus says to, to his disciples, he goes, you know those guys are always trying to get you, us Jewish people to act like Romans? Yeah, you are my apostles. And then he gives them an apostolic prayer. Our Father, who's in heaven, your, hallowed be your name, your, your, that's an apostolic prayer that you would make earth like heaven. Are you with me? See, apostles aren't people who plant churches. Apostles are people who culturize people, transform cities. Apostles, marketplace apostles aren't people who plant, who are entrepreneur and plant businesses. Marketplace apostles are people that when they, wherever their business goes, the kingdom comes. So when you walk into the doors of an apostolic business, you walk into the doors, you just walked into the doors of the kingdom. The kingdom came near you. I have an auto parts store. It looks like an auto parts store on the outside, but it's really just laundering the kingdom. It's just a front for the kingdom. You, you know that Nebuchadnezzar, he destroys Israel, destroys the temple, and takes four boys captive, kills their parents, and brings them into Babylon. It's so funny, because he thinks that he has captured four young boys. What he doesn't realize is that they've captured him. <laughs> because a superior kingdom 
has just been captured by an inferior kingdom. And those boys, word by word and miracle by miracle, begin to disassemble the Babylonian Empire. (laughs) Took captive the wrong boys. See, sometimes it looks like you're a nurse, but you don't really realize that you're just a spy. (laughs) Sent in to the land to destroy the works of the devil. How many of you know that it's the power of God that displaces the powers of darkness, but it's the government of God that replaces the powers of darkness? Turn to Acts chapter 9. Are you guys all right? Got plenty of time, 45 minutes before the game starts. <laughs> this, um, before I read uh, from the 26th verse, let me just give you a little background. There's, you know, the guy named Saul. And Saul is a, he is a, he is like, he's like Hitler in Nazi Germany. He's, he's got letters from the king, and he's breaking into people's homes, and he's dragging believers out of their houses, especially men, and he's stoning them in front of their families. And history tells us that thousands and thousands and thousands of people were stoned to death by Saul and by his entourage of people, that they would literally drag men out of their houses and right in their neighborhoods while the children and and the families looked on, they would stone their fathers to death. And then one day, you know the story, then the Damascus Road, that this Saul has an encounter with God. And then in verse 26, it says this, and when he, speaking of Saul, came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But it says, verse 27, but Barnabas took a hold of him. Man, not again. This is three times. This is too much. And Barnabas took a hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he'd seen the Lord on the road and how he'd talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was moving with them, I'm sorry, and he was with them moving, out, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord, so on and so forth. Verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit it continued to increase. I just want to start by saying this. How many know that it's great that we have faith for miracles and wonders and signs? But the greatest miracle of all is that we believe that don't matter where you've been in life, that God can redeem you. Listen, I want to say something. I, I really feel like this is the word of the Lord, and it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of an exhortation, and it's not my style, really. But I believe that the church, and I mean, I want to include all the church, not just the Baptists or not just the Protestants or not just the people who believe in signs and wonders. I believe the church in the last, this last season has lost sight that God can redeem anyone. I really do. I even believe that people who believe in signs and wonders and miracles have, have forgotten the power of the, of the redemptive blood of Jesus to actually transform anybody. 
And so the Bible says that, that Barnabas took a hold of Saul. He took a hold of Saul. He believed in Saul. When nobody else believed in him, he believed in Saul. And how many of you know that if Barnabas hadn't taken a hold of Saul, that we wouldn't have 13 books of the New Testament? That there was something about this Barnabas. In fact, his real name was Joseph. The, the disciples named him Barnabas because it means son of encouragement. And I want to tell you something. We need Pauls in the world. We, need, we do. We need Silas's in the world. But more than Pauls and Silas's, we need Barnabas's. People that will look after, look at people and say, you know, it doesn't look like you got your life together. You look screwed up. You've got a bad reputation. You're a murderer. But I believe in you. And he took a hold of him and he began to pour his life into him until Paul, till Saul is named Paul, begins to take the lead. There's something about people that, there's something about faith. There's something about the kingdom that, <coughs> that's at hand where people just need to. <clears throat> We need to take the people by the hand and begin to extend the kingdom into their life and say to them, listen, I don't care how far you fell. I don't care how bad you're, you, you're, what you've done in your life, how dark you are. It's, you may be a Rahab. You may be a Saul. You may be, you may be, whatever it is you are, you're not too far from the hand of the Lord that can redeem you. We've got to start believing that God can change anybody. You may be like Rahab. You may be a, a, a prostitute, a whore. You may be so low, the world has counted you out. But the Father knows how to take a hold of people and redeem them so that murderers become the head of the church. It's funny to me. I, I love Barnabas. I, I, I like Paul. I wouldn't want to be his disciple. You know, I love Barnabas. You know, he takes a hold of Paul and he goes with Paul and, and you know, they take Mark along. You know, Mark's a young man and, and they're, you know, they're planting churches and encouraging the churches and, and Mark runs off in their first ministry journey. You know, I don't know that there would be very many people in this room who wouldn't run off. Have you read Paul's ministry credentials? He doesn't say, like, I graduated from such and such seminary. He's like, I was stoned, I was beaten, I was left for dead, I was shipwrecked, I was, you know, 39 lashes five times. You know, it's like, you know, when you're traveling with Paul, it ain't a vacation. And Mark gets scared. I think it scared the hell out of Mark, actually. He probably delivered him from evil. But he runs off. And then, about a couple years later, they're going on another, um, uh, you know, journey Paul, I'm talking about Paul and Barnabas. And Paul wants to take him out. Barnabas wants to take Mark. And Paul doesn't want to take him. Now, you know, there are times when Bill and I don't agree. It's shocking, I know. It takes a while for him to understand some things. <laughs> I mean, there's one thing to not agree. But, but, but Paul is so adamant about take, not taking Mark that he finally says, listen, if you're taking Mark, then you're not going with me. And Barnabas literally has to, it's the first church split in the Bible. Barnabas literally has to leave. Paul absolutely, you, you ever met someone so darn stubborn in all your life? He's like, you can't go. I'm not going with him. He's a chicken. He's a coward. I won't have cowards with me. And Barnabas takes Mark, and they go one way, and Paul takes Silas and goes another. 
We don't know too much about Barnabas and Mark because uh, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, stayed with Paul. So we only have an account of what happened there. But this is the one thing we do know. Years later, like 15 years later, Paul writes to Barnabas and says, send me Mark. He's good for the work of the ministry. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. After Barnabas gets a hold of him. I love this. You know, Paul's, Paul's main disciple was Timothy. How'd you like to be Timothy? Paul writes in Galatians that if you receive circumcision, faith is of no value to you. And then the book of Acts, it says, he circumcised Timothy. You know, Timothy's 30. Paul's all, come here, Tim. <laughs> I'd be like getting my Galatians out. I'd be like, hey, you wrote this in Galatians, and uh, let me repeat what you said in Romans. Uh, dude, I, 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 I'd be a, a disciple of Barnabas, but I'd struggle with Paul. You know what, I'm probably going to have to apologize at some point. Much later, <laughs> hope. I mean, I, we need Barnabas to take a hold of people. You know, Jesus was like that. You know, Jesus, it says in somewhere in the Bible, John 12, it says that Judas was a thief. And then it says that Jesus made the thief the ministry treasurer. Think about it. That's crazy. I mean, why not put Matthew in charge? I mean, he's a tax collector. He knows a lot about money. But no, he puts Judas in charge. What does that tell you about Jesus? It tells you that Jesus trusted people before they deserved it. Listen, Jesus didn't just do miracles like raise the dead, heal the sick, cast out lepers. Cast out lepers? Cast out demons, cleanse lepers, whatever. You know, you should try this three times. I challenge you to say the same thing three times the same way. It's supposed to be original. That's why I make these mistakes. I mean, Jesus is not just doing miracles like healing the sick and stuff. Jesus is believing in people. He's believing in people who don't deserve it. And you know what? The faith that he had in people, in men, in these men, it caused 11 men to be world changers and one man to hang himself. You didn't get that, did you? Let me me just say it again. If you're mentoring people and you have faith in them, If you don't have enough faith to create a Judas, you won't create world changers. See, it takes the kind of faith that can make a man hang himself to create Peter, James, and John. See, what usually happens is is that we have faith in people and somebody becomes a traitor 
and causes us a bunch of pain, basically crucifies us. And we go, I'll never do that again. And we don't even realize we just took on a curse that has reduced Peter, James, and John to nice fathers, to great fathers and nice people in the community. I'll tell you what, if I'm ever crucified by the media, I want it to be for believing in people when they don't deserve it. You know two people denied Christ? Judas and Peter. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he told Mary, go tell the disciples and Peter. I rose from the dead. You know, he didn't mention Peter because Jesus didn't include him. In other words, Jesus still considered him a disciple because Jesus knows everything. But he said, go tell the disciples and Peter because the rest of the disciples decided that Peter shouldn't be included as a disciple when he denied Christ. I hope you're hearing what I'm saying. But Jesus believed in people before they believed in themselves. And he gave people so much faith that they had the ability to become world changers or traitors. Think about it. Would you send any of those people out to do anything by themselves? I mean, they're like nine months old in the Lord, and what are they doing every time Jesus leaves them alone? They're arguing over who's the greatest. And then Jesus says, okay, boys, we're going to do a ministry trip. Okay, um, we're going to go out by twos. First of all, I wouldn't have sent them out by twos. I would have sent them out by ones. I mean, two of them, all they're going to do is argue all the way to the city that Jesus sends them to, who's the greatest. But he sends them out, and he says, listen, I want you to heal sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, and say the kingdom's come near you. And listen, uh, so, so James and John, you guys go over there, Samaria, you guys go to Jerusalem, you guys go to Judea, you guys, and uh, we'll all meet in this city. I mean, these are people who wouldn't be on anyone's prayer team. Without 12 years of sozo. <clears throat> How many of you understand what I'm getting at? And it isn't because Jesus is not discerning or he's passive. How many know Jesus is the most confronting guy in the Bible? You know, if you have an empowering culture and you don't develop a culture of confrontation, you end up with Absalons. Do you remember James and John? James and John, they're going through the city and Jesus wants to go to Jerusalem, and, and Samaria is a shortcut. So they start to go to Samaria, and the Samarians say, you can't come here if you're going to Jerusalem. We hate, the, we hate the Jews. You can't come through our city. So James says, and John, John says to James and Jesus, you want me to call fire down and consume these people? And Jesus goes, dude, you don't even know what spirit you're of. And it's kind of funny. From that day on, he calls them the sons of thunder. (laughs) Don't you like that? Jesus teases them about their bad temper. Are you guys all right? You're bored or something? I'm just saying, Jesus knows how to confront people. How many times does he say to his disciples, how long do I have to be with you? (laughs) I mean, that's not a positive note. But in the midst of Jesus spanking them, he also empowers them. He sends them out. He believes in them. He tells them, listen, your name is Broken Reed, but you're a rock. 
and I'm going to build my church with you. The gates of hell won't be prevail against you. And by the way, you're going to deny me, you know, we're going to have this problem in between you being a rock and you being a broken reed. There's going to be a denial. But don't worry about that. You know, Satan required to sift you like wheat. But, you know, when you turn around, strengthen your brothers. No big deal. Just a little denial. Are you following me? You know, Bill is always the only trouble I've ever seen Bill in. I've been with him. She's we're going on 31 years. How old are you, Eric? 32. Going on 31 years together. The only trouble I've ever seen Bill in in 31 years is when he refuses to treat people the way they deserve. And he believes in them when they don't deserve it. And then when they fall, he refuses to, to treat them the way their fall requires and wants to believe in them again. Troubles me. <laughs> and I want to tell you the truth. The only reason I don't confront him about it It's because that's how he found me. <laughs> See, when he found me, I was a very broken man. Some of you think, well, you ain't much better now. <laughs> 30 years hasn't helped a lot. I mean, when he found me, you know, I was in the middle of a nervous breakdown. I was 127, 28 pounds. I was a broken person. My mind was not there. And he believed in me. You know, wouldn't it be nice if you believed in someone and they instantly changed and they became this Peter and never made any mistakes between the day that you believed in them? Wouldn't it just be amazing? He goes, you're a rock. And I just, like, the next day I was a rock. I'm not talking about, like, a hard-headed guy. I'm just talking about, like, a rock. How many of you know that it doesn't work like that? You guys are hurtful. You're staring at me. I mean, that guy is always in trouble for believing in people. And then when they fall, you would think that he would like 86 them, but no. He's at the front of the list, believing them again. That usually makes me mad unless it's me. I mean, you know what? If I ever get in trouble with the media, I want it to be because I believe in people too much. And I believe in them again when they fall. I'm just going to keep believing in them. And you go, you know what? You're pretty ignorant. Well, then Jesus was too because he believed in Judas and he knew he was a thief. And get this. Well, <laughs> this, is, this is even worse. I just thought of this. Jesus makes him the treasurer. Okay, we know he's a thief, right? Jesus makes him the treasurer, and he's stealing from the treasury. 
You think Jesus would take the job from him? No. He lets him keep the money, even though he knows he's stealing from him. Are you with me? What's the, uh, am I saying he, that Jesus didn't confront him? Well, I don't know. It doesn't say. I mean, I'm sure he did. Who knows? What, who knows what was happening behind the scenes of the Gospels? I'm sure Jesus is the kind of guy who conf- who's confronting. So was he confronting Judas? I just imagine. I just imagine he talked to him about it. I, I don't see Jesus as the guy who's just like, ah, he's stealing from the treasury. No big deal. He's not passive about anything else. It's my opinion. He was probably talking to him about it. But it's just like Jesus to not take the job from him. And then what does he do? He takes the rest of the money that's in the treasury and uses it to sell out Jesus. Jeez. You know, if I'm going to be guilty of something before God, I want to be guilty of believing in people too much. That's what I want. It's not okay that people mess up. You know, there's a difference between a covering and a cover-up. You know, some people want a cover-up. They have gang core values. They're like, we don't narc on each other. No, that's called a cover-up. That ain't a covering. How many know Jesus writes right in the Bible what Peter did wrong? Hey, Peter, I love you, but you're going to be in the book. <laughs> David. He, David's a man after my heart. Oh, he messed up a few times, like killed a guy, had adultery with another person, you know, minor issues. But I love the guy. How many of you know that a covering and a cover-up aren't the same thing? But you know what? But Jesus still believes in you. There are people in this room, I'm going to tell you something. You and I both know you don't deserve to be trusted. I'm sorry, it's the truth. But you're here. You're here. You know why you're here? You may not even know why you're here. You may think you've come to be a traitor. But Jesus brought you in here to be a Peter. We had somebody who ripped off a whole bunch of people in our church for a lot of money. Over $800,000. Just happened. A few months ago or something. And um, I'm, I'm, the leadership, didn't, we didn't know it was happening until it was, it was one of those deals. We didn't know it was happening until it happened. It got $800,000 into it before we found out. That's the truth. I mean, you know me. If I find out about it, I'm going to talk to you. But, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And so we got together with some of the people who got ripped off. And they said, well, why would you let somebody like that in the church? Let someone like that in the church, we let you in. I mean, I just want to just, you to be really aware. There are child molesters in our, in, in, amongst us. There are ex-cons. We have a few people who have murdered people that are sitting in these seats. Yep. It's terrible. Terrible, we have people who God believes in who've done terrible things. It's like, if I'm going to kick out them, I don't know who's going to be left. Maybe just Bill and I? And I'm not sure about Bill. 
Seems to be under a lot of criticism lately. <laughs> Terrible person that you are, praying for people who need help. This is terrible covering people like that. Sorry, I just, there's just some things that are so bad, it's just humorous. How you can judge people for loving other people just totally astounds me. And how you can think that somebody that has an impeccable reputation will not confront somebody who doesn't is just being completely asinine. But because you confront them doesn't mean that you don't still believe in them and keep a hold on them. I mean, if I was Barnabas and he did that to Mark, I'd be like, that's the last time you and I ever have a conversation. But that's not the Lord's way. How many of you have had children? How many of you, your children have done bad things? <laughs> How many of you Love your children who have done bad things. Let, okay, you're just going to get... Now, this will be, this is be more of a, a mother thing. How many of you get mad of people when your children do bad things and those people don't want your children around anymore and you still want them to have the privilege of being around? Yeah, see, I told you. It was a more estrogen thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, the, it's, 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 it's our God-given nature to want to believe in people again, isn't it? It's our God-given nature. It's not, it's not having no discernment. It's, it's, it's what happens when the law of flight meets the law of gravity. <laughs> I, I'm aware that there's gravity pushing me down. I'm aware. I'm not stupid. You just have no discernment. Oh, I'm stupid. But I want the law of flight to overcome the law of gravity. I want to grab these people and I want to say, like Revelation 5, come up here. Okay, well, I offended a few people. Why don't you stand? Well, it talks so long, I'm going to have to have a really short prayer time because the 49ers kick off in a few minutes. I'm just kidding. God created TiVo for that. Let's pray. <laughs> Listen, I want to pray that we'd be an apostolic people, that we would transform people. So would you put your hand on your heart? Say this. Say, Lord... Make me an apostolic person. Help me to call things that are not as though they are and then treat them as though they are. I've got to stop for a minute while we're praying. I just remember this part. Allison, my, uh, one of my students who graduated years ago, she said, I love to listen to other people's prophecies. I said, Allison, why do you love to listen to other people's prophecies? She said, so that I... Then I, see, then I see them as God sees them, and I treat them not as they are, but as God wants them to be. 
Thought such a good point. Let's finish our prayer now. I hate preaching prayer. Say this, God, I want to be like Allison. I want to see people, not as they are, but as you see them. And then I want to invite them into their destiny. Lord, give me the eyes, the eyes of the owl that knows who's who and can see through the darkness. Let me be a person who has faith in people. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. To stay connected, you can sign up for my weekly newsletter at chrisvalentin.com forward slash subscribe. God bless you.